Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 12. Last week, I made it all the way to the beginning of Deuteronomy Chapter 7, almost covering all the people mentioned in the beginning of that chapter. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Unfortunately, I did not have enough time to cover the last group on the list, the Hivites. Actually, the last group listed are the Jebusites, but I covered them much earlier, in Chapter 5, Episode 7. I'll begin this episode with the Hivites and continue pressing forward. So, let's get started. According to the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, the Hivites, among others, descended from Canaan, the son of Ham, the son of Noah. Later in Genesis, this time in chapter 36, we're told that one of Esau's wives was a Hivite, though there is a conflicting translation that she could have been a Horite. Then, there is the mention in Deuteronomy 7, where, like the other groups listed, Moses tells the Israelite people that the Hivites currently inhabit the land they will conquer in Canaan, and that they, also like the other groups, are a mighty people, and the Israelites will need God's assistance to defeat them. This is reiterated in Deuteronomy 20, where Moses tells the Israelites they are to annihilate them, along with the other peoples. And that's what they ended up doing, right? Later, after Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan, and they are about to begin their systematic conquering, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites all unite to fight the Israelites. In Joshua 9, it's implied that the Hivites were also sometimes called the Gibeonites, or maybe one is a subset of the other. I'll get to what that means in a few minutes. Then, something different. A few ragged Hivites approach the Israelites. The Israelites tell the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a treaty with you? The Hivites said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to Joshua, Your servants have come from a very far country, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and of all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey. Go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a treaty with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey, on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, see, it is dry and moldy. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and see, they are burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the leaders partook of their provisions, and did not ask direction from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them guaranteeing their lives by a treaty, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. But, as it would quickly become apparent, things weren't as they had initially seemed. Just three days later, the Israelites figured out that the Hivites had lied and did not travel there from a far-off land, 
and had been occupying that territory for some time. What to do? A problem compounded by the fact that the leaders had sworn an oath not to harm the Hivites. The Israelites set out on a three-day march that took them to the Hivite cities. When they got there, they didn't attack due to the oath of protection. The Israelite people then became angry with their leaders. The leadership held their ground and addressed the people, reminding them of the oath. The Hivites then became carpenters and what's described as drawers of water. So they ran the wells and transported water from the wadis and rivers and reservoirs. But Joshua doesn't let the Hivites completely off the hook. He asks them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, while in fact you are living among us. Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall always be slaves, hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Pausing for a second. This was very similar to the curse Noah put over the descendants of Canaan just after the great flood and in Genesis 9. Unpausing. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we were in great fear for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now we are in your hand. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. This is what he did for them. He saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. The chapter wraps up telling us that, On that day Joshua made them hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to continue to this day, in the place that he should choose. And that's how they avoided being defeated and executed by the Israelites. And there's something else in that last passage. It tells us that, at least the last sentence, was written well after the events described. Like the issue I mentioned earlier, there are other towns and small areas where they may have lived, though different textual sources say the inhabitants of those places may have been Horites or Hittites instead. In 2 Samuel 24, they were still living in the area as a distinct group when King David conducted a census. King Solomon would enslave them, along with other native peoples, all of whom were remnants of those the Israelites didn't completely annihilate upon entering. The last mentioned in the text is in Isaiah 17, when they, along with the Amorites, are said to have deserted their homes. No explanation was given on when or how this happened, or what became of them. And that's it for what's found in the text. But I'm not quite done with them. The name of the people itself, and similar to what I covered with the Perizzites, was thought to be more of a generic origin, perhaps translating from ancient Hebrew to mean someone who lives in a tent. Though there isn't much agreement on this translation. Both ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian inscriptions make no mention of any group with a similar name. Though a subset of the Phoenician language has a group, the Hiawa, that's close, but still not definite. So maybe it was a more generic name for a nomadic people. And that's it specifically for the Hittites. 
But since Joshua said they may have been one and the same as the Gibeonites, I'll take the time in this episode to cover those people too. There was an ancient city of Gibeon in Canaan and north of Jerusalem, and the people who lived there were known, of course, as Gibeonites. In our modern world, it's located in Israel, in Palestinian-controlled territory, on the west bank of the Jordan, about 6 miles, 10 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem. In this location are many natural springs, and historically, it's been an agriculturally prosperous area. The uncovered archaeological remains of Gibeon are located on the southern edge of the village of Al-Jib. This location was first identified in the 10th century AD. True scientific identification would wait for another 900 years or so, until the American religion historian Edward Robinson did so in 1838. More on all of that in a few minutes. Back in the Old Testament, in two consecutive chapters in Joshua, we're told the Gibeonites were Hivites, but in 2 Samuel 21, the Gibeonites were said to have been Amorites. Make of that what you will. And there may never be any way to explain the difference, except if you go back to the potential translation of Hivite from ancient Hebrew, that they lived in tents. Then they could have been Amorites who lived in tents. But that's little more than speculation. The joys of being a historian and frequently living in the land of ambiguity. For the purposes of this episode, let's just assume the people who lived in the city of Gibeon were Hivites, whatever that meant. Do note that doesn't mean that Hivites only lived in Gibeon, though. Remembering back a few minutes to the oath Joshua and the elders swore to protect the Hivites. In Joshua 10, we're told what happened after this, though in this passage they're called Gibeonites. I'll paraphrase the text, but still stick with the narrative, mostly because the king's names here are far beyond my pronunciation capability. Picking up in the first verse, when the king of Jerusalem, and remember that when the Israelites arrived back in the promised land, Jerusalem was controlled by the Jebusites. Anyway, when the king heard how Joshua had taken A and had completely destroyed it, doing to A and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and also how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, the king of Jerusalem became greatly frightened because Gibeon was a large city, like one of the royal cities, and was larger than A, and all of its men were warriors. So the king of Jerusalem sent messages to the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and to the king of Eglon. In these messages he said, Come up and help me. Let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the Israelites. Then these five kings of the Amorites assembled their forces, and went up with all their armies and camped against Gibeon, and made war against it. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua who was encamped at Gilgal, which is where the Israelites settled, at least temporarily, after crossing the Jordan. The message said, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who live in the hill country are gathered against us. 
Joshua, along with the Israelite army, started heading towards Gibeon. Then God spoke to Joshua, saying, Do not fear them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them shall stand before you. The army, led by Joshua, marched all night and took the Amorites by surprise. Then God intervened, throwing the Amorites into a panic, leading to what was described in the text as a great slaughter, a fight that took place at Gibeon. The Amorites then retreated with the Israelites chasing them. At one point in their hasty retreat, God threw stones at them. So many stones thrown from heaven that the rocks killed more Amorites than the number of those that died on the wrong side of an Israelite sword. But Joshua wasn't done with the Amorites, and he commanded both the sun and the moon to stand still in the sky, with the sun halting over Gibeon. This solar anomaly lasted until the Israelites were complete in their vengeance over the Amorites. And astrophysicists have determined that an annular eclipse did occur at Gibeon on October 30th, 1207 BC. Then the text takes an interesting turn, saying, Is it not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in mid-heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded a human voice, for the Lord fought for Israel. Finally ending with Joshua, along with the army returning to Gilgal. I'll get to this book of Jasher in a future episode. For now, no, we don't know much about it. Like the book of the Wars of the Lord, I covered a while back. Obviously, the city of Gibeon played a large part in this narrative. When the Israelites did take the city of Gibeon, it was allotted to the tribe of Benjamin, but like several of the recently covered cities, it too would be given to the Levites, another Levitical city. Later, the Israelites would lose in battle to the Philistines, also losing the Ark of the Covenant in the fight. When that happened, the remaining parts of the tabernacle, so the tent of meeting, the courtyard, the curtains, the altars, everything, was moved from Shiloh to an elevated location in Gibeon. After Saul's death, and after David was anointed the king of Judah, some of his men would meet up with Abner and his men at the pool of Gibeon. There they fought, though I'll save what ended up happening for when I get to that part of the text. For now, just know that the remnants of this pool have been uncovered. A feat of ancient engineering, it was dug nearly 100 feet, about 30 meters into the limestone until the water table filled it. Down its walls ran a spiral staircase, also cut into the rock. Later, King David would defeat the Philistines near Gibeon. Also in the narrative, and in a historical context slightly earlier, this time in 2 Samuel 21, we're told that King Saul had tried to kill off the Gibeonites. This specific event is not recorded in the narrative, but there is a Jewish tradition that associates it with the slaughter of the priest at Nob in 1 Samuel 22. Then, when David was king, a three-year famine hit, where God told David it was the result of Saul's blood guilt, in violation of the oath from back in Joshua. Next in the text is where we're told the Gibeonites were Amorites. King David asked the Gibeonites how he can make up to them what Saul had done, 
and their response is a bit brutal, but very telling for that time and place. The Gibeonites tell David, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put anyone to death in Israel. So David re-asks, What do you say that I should do for you? And the Gibeonites answer, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all of the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be handed over to us, and we will impel them before the Lord at Gibeon, on the mountain of the Lord. David said, I will hand them over. The next substantial mention of Gibeon in the text is when Solomon ascends to the kingship. He would meet with all of Israel's leaders at Gibeon. And since this was still considered what the text calls the principal high place, Solomon offered up a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. The very next thing in the text is God appearing to Solomon in a dream, likely while he was still in Gibeon. God asks Solomon what he wants, and Solomon asks for an understanding mind to govern the people and the ability to discern between good and evil. God told Solomon, because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. All of this occurring at Gibeon. Much later in the text, and after the exile of the Israelites to Babylon, upon their return, Gibeon was made part of Judea. In rabbinic Judaism, the alleged descendants of the Gibeonites, known as the Natanim, are not treated like other Jews. For example, they are forbidden from marrying someone who was a Jew by birth. But there are two separate camps on whether or not these Gibeonites were related to the ones found in Joshua. Ezra chapter 2 goes into some detail concerning these people, with many of the names listed as having returned from the Babylonian exile appearing to be foreign likely from Arab, Ishmaelite, Egyptian, Edomite, and Aramaic families, and possibly the names of the people who have been enslaved. Also, most of the names of the parents cited appear to be feminine in former meaning, and suggest that the Natanim could not trace back to any definite paternity. And that's it for what's found in the text and tradition, but I'm not quite done with the city, as there are outside records. Artifacts, mostly pottery, have been uncovered that date to the early Bronze Age, so well before the Israelites arrived. The pottery is considered crude, possibly indicating the people were nomadic. Tent dwellers, anyone? Though these finds have been rather sparse. Unfortunately, artillery rounds from World War I impacted the area and likely damaged other nearby sites. There may have been a sort of defensive wall around the city, though the evidence of this is rather scant, too. Tombs dating to later have been uncovered, and contain the usual clay bowls and jars. 
these finds are more plentiful than the earlier, cruder ones. And by more plentiful, still, there were only seven such tombs. But they do indicate the Gibeonites were engaged in trade, as the finds resemble pottery also found from the time, and as far away as Cyprus and Mycenae, making both of Greek origin. A couple of these tombs appear to be much older and were potentially being recycled and put into use in that era. Fast forward a little, and you get to the early Iron Age, around the year 1200 BC, at least in this region, and this is close enough to the arrival of the Israelites. At this time, a massive wall was built around the city, and the Pool of Gibeon was built then too. Later in the period, another pool was cut. Both appear to have provided the city with the necessary drinking water, probably where the Gibeonite water carriers retrieved it from. The second pool is still being used today. It's thought that it was during this period that the city was the most economically prosperous throughout its entire history. There's also evidence the city was destroyed by fire in the period, but no definite date can be determined. Maybe this was at the hands of Saul. The first known mention of Gibeon in an outside context is on a list of cities. This list is found inscribed on the wall of the Amun Temple at Karnak, celebrating the invasion of Israel by Egyptian pharaoh Shoshenk I, who ruled between 945 and 924 BC. This places it well after the Israelites arrived in Canaan. Later, the city continued to thrive, apparently supported by an extensive wine industry. About 60 cellars have been uncovered that date to the 8th and 7th centuries BC, with underground rooms large enough to hold as much as 25,000 gallons, 95,000 liters of wine. In a more appropriate context, this equates to about 125,000 modern bottles of wine. At the bottom of what's believed to be the first pool of Gibeon, many wine storage jars were uncovered, and many of these had Hebrew inscriptions on their handles. Take all of this into account and also add to it a well-designed and constructed water distribution system, and you have the making of a potentially thriving industry. Then, apparently something happened, as between about the 6th and the 1st centuries BC, there is little evidence that anyone lived here, or it could simply mean the evidence has yet to be uncovered. Though, nearby, a Greek temple from the period has been discovered, just not in what is considered to be the ruins of Gibeon proper. In this area, there are Greek baths, and in an apparently industrialized area with kilns, probably for the firing of pottery, ovens constructed from the local limestone. Then the Romans arrived, and with them came a construction boom, including Roman baths and even more water-moving infrastructure. The 4th century AD Christian historian Eusebius wrote that Gibeon was previously inhabited by the Gibeonites, who were a Hivite nation, and their village was located about four milestones to the west of Bethel, near Ramah. Bethel was the place where Abraham pitched his tent in Genesis 12. It is also where Jacob dreamed of God and angels. Just to add to the confusion, a milestone, at least in his time, was a rather loose measurement, but tended to average about 1.1 of our modern statute miles, 
about 1.8 kilometers, though your mileage may vary. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the journey through Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcasts as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.